Good morning. We are, we're going to try to stick the dismount here on the Sermon on the Mount series. This will be our last week. So if you've got a Bible or it's on your phone, you can open up. We're in Matthew chapter 7, the last six verses, which are verses 24 to 29. And while you get kind of situated there, uh, this morning we're going we're gonna to make a Venn diagram. If you know what a Venn diagram is. Two, two circles overlap in the middle. There's one provided for you in your bulletin, but uh, if you, you, know, you only took one bulletin per family because you're obedient <laughs> churchgoers, uh, there are some extras out right outside the doors there where you came in, or you can draw one on your notes. There are also some pins in the back, which, I don't know, 20 pins, which should suit us well. So you can, you can grab a pin and, and kind of follow along with us this morning. If you remember what a Venn diagram is, how it works, two circles, they intersect in the middle, you're comparing two things. So you put the differences in the outside pieces and the part that overlaps, you put some similarities. We're going to look at this last parable, a very short illustration that Jesus gives to conclude the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to compare the two things uh, that Jesus is comparing, a wise person and a foolish person, uh, on this Venn diagram. And we're going to use that to kind of wrap up the entire Sermon on the Mount series. So I'm going to read these verses, Matthew 7, 24 to 29, and then we'll dive in. It says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. We're going to look at four similarities between these two individuals, and four differences between these two individuals. So, uh, if you're trying to budget your writing space, four and four, that's what we're working with. We're going to start with the similarities. And... Some of these are incredibly apparent when you read the text, and some of them are not. The first is very obvious. Both groups of people, both persons, hear the words of Jesus. They're hearing. There's no question about that. In verse 24, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. And then in verse 26, he says, and everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them. Both people hear. In fact, this passage, this uh, short parable at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, actually ties very closely into what we just talked about last week. In fact, this parable is the illustration of what Jesus is talking about last week. So kind of track with me through the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount here. Jesus began by saying, enter through the narrow gate. There's a wide gate and a narrow gate. The wide gate leads to destruction. The narrow gate leads to life. And he says, enter through the narrow gate. It's the only way to have eternal life. It's the only way to get life. And so, well, how, I think I entered through the narrow gate. How do I be sure? Well, it's all about fruit. And so he talks about diseased trees and healthy trees. Diseased trees produce bad fruit. Healthy trees produce good fruit. So if there's good fruit, you're on the narrow path. But you can be deceptive about that, and you can just try to look virtuous. So how do I know if someone is deceiving me? And Jesus says, ultimately, we're going to find out at the final judgment that everyone's going to have to stand before the Lord there at what's called the Bema Seat of Christ, and you're going to have to 
face judgment. In that moment, there's going to be no mistaking whose fruit was good and whose fruit was bad, whose tree was good and whose tree was diseased, who went through the narrow gate and who didn't. Because some people are going to hear, away from me, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Okay, well, how do I know before that moment if I'm definitely on through the narrow gate, on the narrow path, producing good fruit? And Jesus says, well, let me give you a picture. And so he paints this picture for us here at the end of Matthew chapter 7. This, this parable becomes the illustration, the final illustration to drive home this point that Jesus is making all throughout the conclusion. So hang with me this morning. It becomes impossible to miss it, but it's important to note who we're talking about. Jesus is standing there giving the Sermon on the Mount. He's got his 12 disciples there uh, gathered around him. And that's really who he's delivering the, the sermon to. But this crowd has joined him at the same time. And so as he gets to the conclusion, it's like he looks up at the crowd and he pleads with them, enter through the narrow gate, be a good tree. Don't give this false profession when you come to judgment. And then he says, everyone who hears, everyone, not just the 12 who are sitting here, but everyone who hears these words of mine. In the New Testament, particularly Jesus throughout the Gospels, talks about hearing in a couple of ways. He who has ears, let him hear. We all hear. Everybody who's there hears the words. But Jesus says, no, you've got to really hear, like spiritually hear what I'm saying. Let it sink down into your heart. The people who hear, that is going to make a difference as we go through the rest of this little illustration. So everyone is hearing. The second thing that everyone does is that everyone is building. Both individuals uh, are building something. They're building a house. We don't get any details about the house. How many floors was it? How many bedrooms? How many bathrooms? Two-car garage, finished basement. Like, what's there? We don't get that. But we know that they're both building a house. Here's why I think that matters. I point that out because as we go about life, we're going to see people. And everybody's just kind of building a life. We're mostly seeking the same stuff. We want happiness and health. And to a certain degree, we want comfort or security. We want meaning and purpose. We want relationships with family and friends. Ultimately, we want to leave some sort of legacy. And on the outside, it can oftentimes be really, really hard to make any sort of distinction between two people. That who's saved, who's not, who's a Christian, who's not. I just see people building lives. I see them striving for their job or for their family or giving time to doing things that are important and meaningful to them. And none of those things are wrong or bad in and of themselves. And Jesus is drawing this important uh, point here, I think, of saying, look, everyone's going to be building. Saved or not, eternity in heaven or eternity apart from the Lord, everyone's going to be building something throughout their life. And oftentimes it's going to look exactly the same. And to really be able to tell the difference, you've got to be able to kind of drill down below the surface and see at a person's heart. This whole thing's been about the heart. On the outside, you often can't tell the difference, Jesus says. So they're described as both building a house. They're also building in the same location. Now, the foundation is different, and we'll get there in a minute. But they're in the same general location. They're in what's called a wadi, W-A-D-I. Here's a picture of a wadi. I don't really think we have wadis in the Midwest or in America. All throughout the region over there, which is very 
desert-like and arid and dry. When it rains, these channels will flood with water. That's why there are trees on both sides. When it gets water, or when it gets rain, water rushes through there. Jesus is describing two people who are building a house, and they're in this kind of location. How do we know that? Well, because in a minute, when it rains, it floods right away, and the waters rise. And so we're building in this type of location. I'll talk more about location kind of stuff here in a minute. The last thing that's a similarity between the two is that they both face the same challenges. It rains on both houses. It floods both houses. There's wind that's beating against both houses. Scripture makes absolutely no guarantee that just because you've placed your faith in Jesus and you're genuinely following him, that you're not going to face the same challenges that everybody else in the world faces. We're deceiving ourselves, we're lying to ourselves if we believe that just because I've placed my faith in Jesus, everything's gonna go well in my life. We're lying to ourselves if we think that just because I, I love the Lord and I'm doing everything I can to follow him, that he's gonna eliminate all the potential problems from our lives. We live in a broken world and we're subject to the brokenness that's all around us. Which means that whether you've placed your faith in Christ or not, your life is going to bump up into seasons of illness, or loss, or disappointment, or dashed hopes. You're going to face times where a dream or a goal doesn't come to fruition, where there's unexpected disaster, unmet expectations, unforeseen changes in circumstances. You might have periods of overwhelming grief due to the loss of a family member, or friend, or crushing heartache that comes with the pronouncement of an unwanted diagnosis of an illness in your life or in your family's life. You might lose someone you love. You might lose money. You might lose your job. You might lose an important relationship. The Bible says that whether you're Christian or not, those things happen. They happen to us, often when we least expect it. And one of the things about America is that we've got a lot of resources and a lot of stuff that allow us to insulate ourselves from those things to the point where we think they can't happen. That I've put all of these things in and around my life that make it so that that sort of unmet expectation or that dashed dream or that loss of money or that illness can't possibly happen to me. And then when it does, we are devastated. We're devastated because we thought, well, Jesus, I'm trying to follow you as best I can, and this shouldn't happen. And we're devastated because I did all this stuff to protect myself from this, and yet it still happened. And oftentimes, it leads us to question whether or not God is good or actually cares for us or is real or exists at all because look at this bad thing that happened. We come at this with an unrealistic expectation of the fact that because I love the Lord, this stuff can't happen to me. That's just not true. Both individuals face the same exact challenges. Everybody that you interact with in life that's building a life, building a house, is going to face the same challenges. They might come at different times. They might look a little bit different, but there's no escaping them. We can't get away from them. The challenges are the same. One house has a certain outcome, and the other has a different So we're going to switch and talk about the differences between these two things. The first one is that one's built by a foolish person, One's built by a wise person. Remember, Jesus is talking about an unbeliever and a believer, a self-deceived person and someone who's genuinely going to be saved, a follower of Christ and someone who's not following Christ. But he uses the words foolish and wise here. If you want the Bible's most succinct picture of a wise person versus a foolish person, you should spend just 
five minutes in the book of Proverbs. It's all over the book of Proverbs. What does a fool look like? What does a wise person look like? Let me give you some characteristics from Proverbs of a foolish person and a wise person I think are pertinent to us this morning. Proverbs makes it very clear that more than anything else, a foolish person thinks life is all about them. That's Proverbs 14.3. Proverbs 14.16 says that a foolish person is hasty. They see something that looks good and they just rush after it without thinking about it or considering it in any sort of way. This is like your dog when it sees a squirrel. It doesn't matter what else is going on in the world around your dog at that moment. Car coming, electric fence around the yard. Once it sees the squirrel, it's hasty. I want the squirrel. I'm just going to chase it, regardless of what happens. Jesus says the person who lives that kind of way is a fool. Proverbs says that. Proverbs 28, 26, they rely only upon themselves. Proverbs 12, 15, they refuse counsel. Proverbs 15, 5, they hate instruction. Proverbs 27, 12, they don't pay attention to danger or try to avoid it. They rely upon themselves. They refuse wise counsel. They don't want instruction. They don't seek danger. A fool is kind of like the person in a scary movie who insists upon opening the door. Can you not hear that the music is getting more intense? Are you not paying attention to the fact that everyone else in the house has fled to somewhere else, but you just want to open the door? You are a fool. Take instruction. Look for some wise counsel. Don't make a hasty decision. Don't just rely upon yourself, right? Proverbs 13.20 says that a fool is typically cheered on by their foolish friends. Have you ever considered the person... Have you ever really taken a minute to consider the person that goes streaking at a sporting event or jumps out on the field in the middle of a football game? Where were that guy's friends? I'll tell you where they were. This is going to be awesome. (laughs) You should totally do it. That's where their friends are. They're just cheering them on. A fool is typically cheered on by foolish friends. No one steps in and says, you're going to end up in prison tonight. That's exactly where this is headed. The real trouble here in all of Proverbs as it talks about a foolish person is that they just want to do their own thing. They don't want anybody else to interfere with that. And ultimately, Proverbs 3.35 says that they will inherit shame. That's what Proverbs says about the fool. It contrasts that all throughout the book of Proverbs with a person who is wise. They are prudent and careful. They're observant. It's Proverbs 12.16. They listen and want to add life into their, our knowledge into their life. That's Proverbs 1.5. They seek wise counsel, Proverbs 12.15. They apply what they've learned, Proverbs 22.17. They regard or heed instructions, Proverbs 15.5. They foresee danger and avoid it. They surround themselves with wise people, and ultimately, Proverbs 3.35 says that a wise person will inherit glory. Kind of think about these two builders. I think you see a lot of those things. Jesus says, a foolish person hears me speak and does nothing about it. A wise person hears me speak and does something about it. And in eternity, that's going to make all the difference. The next outcome, or the next difference is the outcome One of the houses falls, and one of the houses stands. Jesus' final words here in the Sermon on the Mount repeat the same thing he's been saying throughout the conclusion, which is that there are only two options, and they're eternally significant. You're either going to fall or you're going to stand. 
That word fall literally means total, complete, utter destruction. In fact, my translation says, and great was the fall of it. That's the end of verse 27. Your translation might say, and utter was its destruction, or and complete was its downfall. The house is wiped away. It's not just that, like, a storm came and it kind of broke off the gutter a little bit. It's that the storm came, the flood rose, the winds beat against the house, and the house was gone. It's flattened. It's totally wiped out. Contrast that with the other house. The storm comes, the rain happens, the winds beat against it, the flood rises, and it stands. Jesus, I think, is talking about both life's uh, physical trials and challenges like we talked about earlier, but I think he's also talking about this moment of final judgment. That's someone who's heard the words of Jesus and reacts to them as he's going to describe here in a moment is going to stand. They're going to stand the tests of life. They're going to stand the challenges and the problems and the things that come because they've got hope in Jesus. They've got hope in the fact that though life may be really hard at the moment, eternity is secure with him. They've got hope in the fact that he has lived and experienced what it's like to be a human being and can sympathize with their struggles. They've got hope in the fact that he can identify with them. Conversely, a person who is just hastily building a life based on what they think sounds good to them at any given moment, when those challenges come up in life, they're just going to fall. The money's going to get wiped away. The relationship's going to get wiped away. And they're going to fall. They're also going to fall at the time of final judgment because they've built a life upon themselves and they've said, I think I can save myself, Lord. I think I can just chase whatever I want and get ultimate significance and, and live a good enough life. And God's going to look at that person and say, depart from me, I never knew you. Conversely, a person who's placed their faith in Christ is going to stand there in that final moment of judgment and they're going to stand because Jesus has paid the price on their behalf. Because when God looks at that individual, the righteousness of Christ has been given to them by faith and they're going to stand in that moment. The third difference here is about the foundation. One is rock, one is sand. Make a little note if you're taking notes to go check out Luke chapter 6 later. In Luke 6, 49, uh, we get the parallel account here. And Luke adds a certain detail that Jesus says the wise person digs down into the sand in order to find bedrock. It takes a little bit of work. It takes some effort. He didn't just go to a different place that was a little more rocky and build over there right on top. He dug down to the bedrock in order to lay a foundation, as opposed to the fool who just builds on top of the sand and takes no care about anything else. The wise person gets down below the surface. He finds bedrock and builds a foundation. The fool doesn't consult anyone, doesn't try to figure out the best way to do it. He just hastily builds himself a house, and ultimately it gets washed away. The last difference here, I think, is the most important one. What causes the house to stand or not stand has nothing to do with the builder. It has nothing to do with how well the house is constructed. It has nothing to do with even necessarily the location. The foundation allows it to stand or the foundation causes it to fall. But Jesus gives us a picture of what leads to the right foundation. You either hear and do, or you hear and don't do. 
what Jesus says. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise person. Everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them is like a fool. And so you're sitting here this morning and you say, wait a second, Tim, for like five months you've been telling us that faith in Jesus isn't about anything that you do. And you're right. Faith in Jesus isn't about anything that you do. It's about what he's done on your behalf. But here in this illustration, one person falls and one person stands, and it's based entirely upon their response to what they've heard Jesus say. And so I want to walk back through the Sermon on the Mount very carefully. Because here is what we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and understand. It's that in matters of eternity, you have to have a heart that's built on the firm foundation of Jesus. That is all that matters. And so I think we can look at the Sermon on the Mount the things that Jesus has said, everyone who hears these words of mine, and we can figure out, is a person wise or foolish based on how they respond to the Sermon on the Mount? So if you've got your Bible, flip back to Matthew chapter 5. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to walk us through this two times. The first time I'm going to walk us through this, and I'm going to respond to things as we go, as someone who is not built on the rock someone who's built their house on the sand, someone who hears the words of Jesus and doesn't actually hear them. Matthew 5, 3 starts, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. I can do that. I can handle that. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. I can be light. I can just be different than the people around me. I can do that. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. I can handle my anger. I'm pretty even-tempered. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I don't, I don't think I lust as much as the people around me. I can just keep my word. I cannot retaliate against the people that make me angry. I can love my enemies. They'll still be my enemies, but I think I can love them. I can give to the needy. I can pray. I can fast every once in a while, like the day after Thanksgiving when I'm already full. I can try to lay up treasure in heaven instead of treasure on earth. I can do a really good job of not worrying about tomorrow. I cannot judge other people. That person's a fool. That person hears the words of Jesus and does nothing about them. Because that person thinks that they can save themselves. That person's building a life. That person's staking their eternity on sand. It's not going to stand. It's not going to stand the challenges of life. It's not going to stand ultimate judgment at the end. A heart that says, I can do this for myself, is a heart that's built on the sand. It's the opposite of what Jesus is repeatedly pointing out to us about the heart of a follower of Jesus all through the Sermon on the Mount. That kind of thinking is, is thinking that says, I can save my part, myself apart from the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's not true. Let me give you another way to read the Sermon on the Mount. Flip back to 
to the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Yeah. I understand my bankruptcy before the Lord spiritually. I understand that I can't do anything to save myself and I hunger and thirst for a righteousness that can only come to me thanks to the work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. I can't do that on my own. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. I can't be that apart from a new heart thanks to the work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Yeah, sometimes my anger gets the best of me. And thank you, Jesus, that you have saved me. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I am guilty. Thank you, Jesus, that you have saved me. I can't always keep my word perfectly. Sometimes in my heart, I long to retaliate against the people that wronged me. It's not just that I struggle with loving my enemies, it's that I definitely have some. Sometimes when I give, I do it with the wrong motive. Sometimes when I pray in a group, I just long to be heard. I don't really ever fast because I really like food. I want to lay up treasure in heaven, but honestly, I also really like the treasure in my house. I really like the stuff that surrounds me. I don't want to worry about tomorrow, but if I'm honest with myself, I just can't not think about it sometimes. And though I long to not judge others, sometimes I struggle with the fact that I see myself as better than the people around me. Jesus, I need you to save me. I need you to help me. I need the Holy Spirit to empower me to live this kind of life that Jesus is describing. A heart that says, I can't do this without Jesus is a heart that's built on the rock. When Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise person who built his house on the rock, Jesus is talking about someone hearing his words with spiritual ears and seeking or having the Lord produce in them the kind of heart that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says Every, everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them, he's talking about someone who hears the gospel, who hears Jesus' words, who hears the Sermon on the Mount and says, I don't need that. I can save myself here. I can do enough good stuff. I cannot murder someone. I cannot be angry too much. In matters of eternity, you need a heart that's built on the firm foundation of Jesus more than anything else. It's the only thing that will ultimately save. That's the difference between a house that stands and a house that falls. It's the only difference. I want to point out what happens when Jesus finishes talking. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. 
for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus had just totally recast a vision for what it looked like to live in relationship with the Lord. Suddenly, it had nothing to do with what you could do, what you could accomplish, and it had everything to do with the fact that you couldn't do it, and Jesus came to fulfill it on your behalf. And they're just amazed by it. They're floored by it, blown away. They're astonished, the text tells us. Because Jesus has this authority, and what he's saying appears to be true and accurate. And he's taking things out of the Old Testament that they would have known and understood, and he's totally giving them this new meaning about having this heart that longs to be obedient to the Father. And then look at what happens in chapter 8, verse 1. When he, that's Jesus, came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Great crowds followed him. That's the only logical response. I've just heard this man totally change what I think it means to have a relationship with the Lord, totally change what I think it means to have a secure eternity. I just want to go where he goes. I want to hear what he has to say. I want to do what he tells me to do. I want to be wherever he's going to be. That is the New Testament gospel picture of what it looks like to have a heart that has placed its faith in Jesus, that you say, he has spelled out for me what it looks like to be saved, and I just want to go where he goes. I want to be where he is going to be. I want to do what he is doing. I want to be a part of that. I long to be obedient to that. I can't save myself. Only he can do it. And because he's done it for me, I want to just be where he is. All throughout this series, we talked about holding up this mirror and allowing scripture to kind of reveal for us what we are at a heart level. And so this morning, I want to invite you to take a a pretty serious look at how you've responded to various pieces of the Sermon on the Mount. Have you more often than not said to yourself, I can do that. I can just not be angry. I can be salt and light. I can give with a good motive. I can pray the right way. If that's the case, Jesus makes it clear at the end that you're probably standing on sand because you think you can save yourself. And ultimately, you cannot. Conversely, if you're someone who's here this morning and as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount and you've continually said to yourself, I can't do these things. Praise the Lord that Jesus has done them on my behalf and that he's sent the Holy Spirit to strengthen me, to grow into his image as I go forward following him, then you're built on the rock. You've got nothing to fear in the moment of judgment. I want to give a couple of encouragements to both groups of people. If you've not placed your faith in Christ for your salvation, I want to invite you to do that this morning. Here's how. Maybe over the last few weeks you've heard these messages and you've started to think to yourself, I don't know if I've ever placed my faith in Christ. I I just, I'm not sure if I've done that. I want to invite you to use the little tear-off card in your bulletin and just write us a quick note. Give us your name and your contact information and tell us that you want to talk to someone about salvation or about placing your faith in Christ and drop it in one of our offering boxes and our staff is going to call each and every one of those people over the course of this week because we want to have a conversation with you. We want to be able to answer your questions about who Jesus is or talk to you more about the gospel or help you in whatever way uh, would be most beneficial for you in terms of answering your questions about what it looks like to have faith in Jesus. If you're someone who's here this morning and you've placed your faith in Christ and you read the Sermon on the Mount and you say, yes, Jesus has saved me, praise the Lord. Then I want to give you this encouragement. 
real faith plays itself out in real life. It's tangible. You can see it. You can see it in the way you interact with the people around you. You can see it in the way you conduct yourself at work. You can see it in the way you conduct yourself with your children or in your home or with your spouse. You can see it in the way that you interact on social media. The world can see it because the house stands. It's there. It's not wiped away. It is salt and light out in the world. You can see it. Real faith plays itself out in real life because you've got a new heart and you've got to get out of the way and allow that to just bleed itself out into the world around you. As I was putting together this message, I couldn't help but think about the thousands of people that live here in our city, Kansas City North, north of the river, who desperately need the gospel. And all that they see on a regular basis about Christians is the stuff on the media or on the news about Christians being judgmental and closed-minded and not loving and don't care and just want to rail against certain things out in the world around us. Those people desperately need to, to hear the gospel. They also desperately need to see it. They need to see the real faith of real believers playing out in real life. They need that more than anything else in all of their life. And if we're going to be a church that has a phrase out on the wall that says we're building devoted followers of Jesus Christ and we've got to be a group of people who make that our goal, who make that our mission, who say, you know what? I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ in this sort of way and it plays itself out in real life and I just long for the gospel to be made known to the people around me. We need to be a group of people who become about that in all aspects of our lives at all times. And so if you're in that position and you say to yourself, you know what, I want to get more involved in that mission, then I want to invite you to use your communication card again and just jot us a quick note with your, communi- with your uh, contact information so that we can call you and say, hey, let's have a conversation and figure out how we can get you invested in building devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Let's figure out what you're passionate about, what you're gifted at, and how we can use that for the sake of the gospel in the lives of the people that you have influence with. You can tear those cards off either camp and drop them into the tithes and offering boxes and we're going to call you this week. And we're going to have a conversation about what it looks like for you to take steps forward in either one of those camps. I'm going to invite the worship team up and we're going to sing that uh, in Christ, our cornerstone again. Christ alone cornerstone. Weak made strong in the Savior's arms. The opening words of that song are, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but holy trust in Jesus' name. That's what it looks like to put your faith in Jesus Christ, to look to him and say, in him alone is my cornerstone. The weak is made strong thanks to the foundation of a heart that's built on Jesus Christ. It puts all of our hope on Christ. And so I'm gonna invite you to stand. We're gonna sing. Take a second and fill out that communication card if you want to know how to place your faith in Jesus or if you want to know how you can get more involved in building devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, alongside us here at this church. We're going to sing, Mitchell pray, and then we'll go from this place.